Hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel here, and I am your host for this show today. And we have just come off a great weekend in Seattle, and uh, I won't go in the blow-by-blow because uh, I think I did that for Orange County four weeks ago, and uh, it was just as good as then. But I will offer this thought, and um, this was our reality apologetics, student apologetics conference, and in four weeks, actually from just a few days ago, uh, four weeks ago, there, I'm looking for my, uh, what did I do with it? Well, I don't have my, I'll have to get my announcements uh, after the break, but um, in the the um, the middle of November, okay, whatever that weekend is, 14th, 15th, 16th, something like that, we'll be in, in um, <clears throat> excuse me, Minneapolis, and I think we have like 2,200 or 2,300 already signed up. It's been really good. But um, on Friday night, we do this very special thing, and the important thing that I want to focus in on right now is not so much the um, the means of uh, delivery of the information, which is magnificent, and the way our team has put together this special presentation, it's called the Late Night Reality Show, like a talk show for- format. It just works really well. <laughs> Excuse me, but it also works really well to lay a foundation for the theme of the weekend, and that is deconstruction and deconversion. And the way they're using the term deconstruction is that um, people are thinking about their point of view, their spiritual convictions, their faith, if you will, and their Christian faith, and they are, as they say, deconstructing. And uh, the, the precise way we mean the term is that um, they are being critical of things that they don't like about Christianity or that they learned, which there's nothing wrong with that. They have doubts, they have questions, they have concerns, but they are seeking to answer those doubts, questions, concerns without reference to the Bible. They are using some other source of authority, whether it's themselves or their feelings or their friends or some YouTuber or some rock star or some movie star or whoever it happens to be, some disgruntled Christian, that's the source of authority, not Scripture. And that's the difference between deconstructing and reforming. Reforming, like Martin Luther did, is to go back to the text And if there are things in the church that are not right according to Scripture, then we fix those and bring them in alignment with Scripture. The difficulty is a lot of people don't like what Scripture actually says about a whole host of issues, and so they're looking not for an answer but for an exit, to quote Tim Barnett. And what I think is so great about this session, these Friday night and all day Saturday— and like I said, in uh, next month it will be in Minneapolis, and then in February we'll be in Dallas, Texas, in March we'll be in Philadelphia, and in April we'll be in Augusta, Georgia. And you can go to realityapologetics.com and get all the skinny on that. But it just was, in a certain sense, even more impressed upon me the significance of the, not just the material covered there, but the the way it is all put together. And one of the reasons I thought of it is I had a friend that was going to come on Friday night, wasn't able to make it, and so they came on Saturday, and then hearing all this about deconstruction had a lot of questions about what is that anyway? And is this something that's really happening in the church? 
deconstruction leading to deconversion or what? And of course, all of that was ground that was covered thoroughly on Friday night. Point being, on Friday night, we cover these foundational issues so you have a sense of how to understand everything that follows the next day, all day Saturday. The plenary sessions and uh, the breakout sessions. So um, if you are anywhere within striking distance of Minneapolis, I have friends that are in Wisconsin, and I, I mean, I have a whole Christian community there. People that I know, I teach the, at the church there in Woodruff every summer. So um, I know it's a bit of a drive, three and a half hours, so that ain't much. We usually get 15 different states at any given event. In fact, when I taught one breakout session, um, the, for on tactics, what I'm saying is just um, surveying a single breakout section. I, I th- session. I think I had at least five, maybe six states represented just in that one session. So um, people drive from all over, and if you plan to do this with your youth group, we've had groups come from St. Louis to Dallas. They left at O'Dark 30 on Friday morning. Signs on their van said Dallas or bust, and then they drove all the way through Missouri, down through a portion of Oklahoma, and then down through Texas to get to Dallas for the evening event, which starts by the doors open, I think, at 5.30 p.m. If you're thinking about doing that, be sure to leave really, really early relative to your uh, point of embarkation. But uh, basic point is just the, the tremendous... Um, I think, benefit and encouragement that young people are getting in light of the tremendous pushback they have been getting from culture. And culture has been really tough, and it's going to get tougher. And I, I uh, the, the, as I've said many times, the most important generation is the next generation. And that group, by and large, that attends reality conferences— that would be them. And we are working hard to pass the baton to them because, you know, uh, I'm not going to live forever in the physical sense. And uh, eventually, I'll be hanging up my cleats. Um, their folks are going to hang up their cleats. Their pastors are going to hang up their cleats. We are moving on. And the, the baton will be fully transferred to them. And we're counting on them. And we, we're... We're depending on them, and we need them to stand firm and to stand tall for Jesus in the face of the incredible onslaught that is building in the culture. So, uh, ironically, when I was in Eastern Europe in 1976, I spent three and a half months in Europe and five and a half weeks in the East, not counting Yugoslavia. That was also a communist country, but it wasn't, strictly speaking, behind the Iron Curtain. So I total, it was maybe six and a half weeks in those countries. That would be former Yugoslavia, because it's been broken up now. But um, I had a diary that was 87 typed pages long of all of my experiences, and I converted it uh, to digital form with my scanner yesterday— so now I have a safe spot in case something happens. But just reviewing the things that I experienced 
when I was there behind the Iron Curtain and working with Christians who are suffering and everything, uh, just was a reminder of how precious real liberty is. And the ones who live in the United States that are emigres from former Soviet bloc countries, they know the contrast, and they are really scared. And incidentally, if you'd like to see a very simple treatment of what we're facing, I have talked about Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies. He has actually done a PragerU, a five-minute piece called something about totalitarianism. It just came out this week. So I recommend you go to PragerU. You can do it on your iPhone. You can do it on your computer, wherever. Just type P-R-A-G-E-R and the letter U. They've had 7 billion views, by the way. Talk about moving the meter. But this is a very—in five minutes, you're going to get a picture of what's going on. And uh, and it's good that we be sober-minded, because we've seen this kind of thing before uh, quite a number of times, but we've never seen it here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. All right? If you, the, we have much less freedom now. And the bravery quotient has gone way down, which is why we have much less freedom. So anyway, just a thought on that. Um, I wanted to say something about um, about morality and God, and I've just uh, finished this book. Still got work to do on it, but the manuscript's in. Street smarts. But there is a chapter called Good Without God? Question uh, mark. Because uh, I think that Evil is atheism's fatal flaw, not theism's, but atheism's fatal flaw. And, of course, there is an attempt to demonstrate that you can have goodness without God. That's why I have a, chi- t- a chapter titled, Good Without God? Question mark. Okay. Now, let me just clarify this, because I actually think this is one of the most difficult issues to make clear. Uh, It is similar to the relativism-objectivism issue, especially when it comes to morality. And uh, because I'm not sure why. It's just an esoteric kind of notion. It's not the kind of thing that many people have thought well enough about in order to make accurate distinctions, and it's just because they haven't been trained. So I acknowledge it's a tricky issue. I've worked in a lot of different ways to try to make it more clear, but and I think I do a pretty good job in the book. But the the, the point simply is, can an atheist be good without believing in God? Well, if there is real goodness, and goodness is grounded in God, and this would be the moral argument for God's existence, and I think that's the case. Objective evil requires objective good, and objective good can only come from an objective set of laws that require an objective lawmaker that has the authority to make the laws. That part is not really difficult. Now, if there is no God, then there are no laws. If there are no laws, there is no law-breaking. And so there can be no evil and no good either. So if God doesn't exist, the atheist cannot be good, because the term has no meaning. Nor can the theist, or any other religious person, for that matter. If there is no governing authority over the universe— that, in a sense, 
and here's a, a way of characterizing it to make it easy to understand, sets the speed limits of the universe, then there cannot be any speed limits. And if no speed limits, then no broken speed limits. Okay, you get the picture. So if there is a God, even people who don't believe in God can still do the things that are objectively good in some measure. They certainly can be good without a belief in God, if there is a God. But if there is no God, then there are no objective moral obligations, and therefore no one can be good or bad, because there's no standard. So if there is no God, atheists and Christians can all do the same behavior that we call good, but it would not be good for either, because there is no standard defining it as such. There are just preferences or whatever, but it's just activity. Now, of course, the pushback at this point is the, um, is the Darwinian model. Well, Darwinism can account for morality. Okay, now this is where we have to define our terms carefully. Um, if what you mean is Darwinism can account for our feelings of morality, our common understanding of what is good and what isn't good, um, maybe. I, I'm not convinced that any system of natural selection working on genetic mutation has the capability of building belief systems in a conscious mind, partly because there is no way to demonstrate that consciousness can emerge from material matter, and right and wrong are features of consciousness. This is why Daniel Dennett says consciousness is, this is one of the new atheists, conscious, consciousness is just an illusion. Well, if it's just an illusion, then the beliefs we have are illusory too, which beliefs, according to them, on morality were caused by Darwinian evolution. So evolution is not going to get you out of the gate there, it seems to me, because beliefs are part of consciousness and evolution can't explain that. So, uh, and if it's a, a delusion or whatever, then that's even worse. But let's just say it could. It could give me, let's just say it could give the whole human race certain common beliefs that end up serving our survival as a species, helping us to effectively get our genes into the next generation in a productive way, not just willy-nilly creating a bunch of kids here and there, but rather uh, building a functioning society that allows, in an ordered way, for us to... Uh, increase the population, all right? Well, that may be true, too. That Let's just say that, even if I granted that, where is the locus in that way of looking at it of good and evil? Now, I think when most people think of, say, let's just say racism, People think racism is evil in itself. Even those who believe it's good, they're still wrong. Because the locus of the, the uh, moral quality is in the action itself. It's outside of us. But if we have merely a belief that racism is wrong, 
because of evolution, where is the locus then of the morality? It's inside of us, in our belief, not outside of us. And had we evolved differently, then our morality would be different on that view. Again, even conceding that Darwinism could create our moral beliefs. It still would amount to nothing more than relativism. That's it. That's all it would be. That's the inside-outside distinction I talk about. Our, the, the, the moral code is inside. Okay, how about this? If Darwinism is true, why should I be good tomorrow? Now, there's no answer to that. The presumption is, I mean, I could hear the answer in my head, oh, because this helps us uh, survive as a group. But there's a presumption there that helping us survive as a group is it a good thing in itself. What makes it good in itself? The long and short of it is, if Darwinism explains our view of morality, then we have nothing more than relativism, because biology cannot make anything bad in itself. It might be able to make us believe it's bad for the benefit of evolution, but it can't make the thing actually objectively bad. And things have to be objectively bad for there to be a problem of evil. Now, having said that, I've got some pushback from some who have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is an objective standard in evolution. It's genetic mutation and natural selection. That is an objective state of affairs that creates, as the, as the idea goes, that creates the beliefs within us. So we have moral beliefs about things that are grounded in an objective state of affairs, that being natural selection, working on genetic mutation. Well, that is an objective state of affairs. There's no question about that. I'm just presuming that it works that way, but still, these are objective things. But what is it creating? That's the point. You can have all kind of objective measurements that determine certain beliefs, or at least in principle, or maybe even certain behaviors. But what is it that makes those behaviors dictated by these objective standards actually right or wrong in themselves. That's the key. Just because you have objective standards to measure certain behavior does not tell you whether the behavior itself is objectively good. It just means that the behavior is objectively attainable by certain standards. This is nothing more than consequentialism, okay? You want to make really, really, really good spaghetti? Okay, then you go A, B, C, D, E, and you have really good spaghetti. So there are objective standards for something like that. Or maybe that's not a good illustration because food is subjective. Some people don't like spaghetti. So if you could do really, really good math, that is, you get the equations all correct. There are objective standards for good math, at least when I went to school. But that doesn't mean the answers that you get through some objective means, are morally good. They are merely accurate. There's a difference between getting something accurate and accomplishing something that is morally good. 
Okay. So um, this is the problem. Pointing to objective standards like natural selection and mutation uh, to accomplish a belief about morality doesn't mean that the beliefs themselves, the moral quality of the beliefs, are grounded objectively in an objective moral standard. Now, if that's making your head buzz a little bit, man, I'm sympathetic. Because, like I said, I don't think this is a uh, always an easy way of putting it, all right? Uh, I should say always an easy way of, of, of trying to figure out how these things work together. But I, I think it's critically important because it does relate not only to human behavior and human community, morality, the basis for just law, appropriate exercise of power, but it is also a factor in how one, understand, one understands the nature of the universe and the, a, a proper explanation for why the universe is the way it is. This all ties in, in my view, to the issue of the existence of God. <clears throat> and so that's why I hit these from all kinds of different angles so that you um, maybe I'll seize upon some way of explaining it that makes sense to you. Okay, looks like we've got a lot of callers on board and from Texas and Colorado and California, and there's another one from somewhere, not sure, but we're going to get to those right after our break. So Greg Kokel here on Standard Reason. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith, because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. 
So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends, uh, lots of callers on board. Love to see that. It's like feast or famine, it seems like. But even if we don't have callers, we've got uh, open mic callers. We've got a couple of sheets of that, so we can always go to that if necessary. But let's go right to Andy, Lubbock, Texas. Andy, welcome to Santa Reason. Hey, Greg, it's great to talk with you. Thank you, sir. You too. Um, I've uh, been enjoying uh, teaching your tactics class at church for the past couple of years. Uh-huh. Um, and I have a friend that teaches with me, and I just wanted to share that with you. We've been uh, enjoyed uh, sharing this information to uh, friends uh, in our church. So, That's great. So. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And this book that I've just completed, uh, that'll be out in June, it's kind of an, an, an extension. So I think if you like the tactics book, I think Street Smarts will also serve you well. But what we've been doing is we've been teaching tactics in the fall and the spring semesters. Ah. Uh, so, so we tell people... You know, we will give you the tools you need to have good conversations at Thanksgiving and then good conversations <laughs> Easter. at Easter dinner. <laughs> so, good for you. So anyway, so yeah, that that seems like maybe a, a good thing, like tactics in the fall and then street smarts in the spring or something. However like you like right. to do it, right. One's an extent mm-hmm. to the other, and street smarts is more, really functions more as a standard apologetics book because I deal with broader issues and answer okay. them, then give you tactical conversations, tactically informed conversations to help you maneuver with others when you talk about these particular issues. Well, that's great. I look look forward to the book. Great. So, all right. My question has to do with um, our sins being covered or washed away. Mm-hmm. We have a Bible study at my house on Thursday mornings, and we use a, a Ligonier uh, periodical uh, t- called Table Talk. Right. And we were going through the um, the Tabernacle and came across the Mercy Seat, mm-hmm. and it just struck me. You know, I, I've heard the term covered and then washed away, but it struck me here. It talked about it being covered, the, our sins being covered. You know, Correct. they were the blood covers it. But then I thought, gosh, it it sounds a lot better for our sins to be washed away rather than covered. You know, covered makes me think of you know. Um, Sweeping the dirt under the rug and covering stuff. <laughs> sure. Versus washed away sounds complete and like they are gone. So yeah, I was wondering if that is just the limits of the metaphors here, or if there is something in the New Testament that's more complete. No, you know? these mean the same thing. They're synonyms, but there's okay. a reason that these different terms are used. You also see, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. These are all um, metaphors that are meant to communicate a literal truth. And by the way, this is is something you could tell your students. Whenever we have figurative language, and it's not just the Bible, it's any time, you know? Right. It's like, I've said this a million times on the radio. Now, if I use that remark, obviously that's hyperbolic. It's an exaggeration from the point of But the literal point is, I've said it over and over and over. I've made this point a number of times, almost countless. So those are, notice, when anyone uses any kind of 
figure of speech. It is meant to speak in, say, a language that people understand, and they can make the connection with the figure and the sense that is trying to be communicated. So the illustrations, like whether it's washed away or scarlet to white or east from the west, you you get different um, ways of understanding the the uh, the forgiveness of God regarding our sins. And I'll, I'll make it even more aggressive than that. It isn't just forgiveness. It is the complete forgiveness, the thoroughgoing right, right. forgiveness. Okay, now East and West, scarlet, mm-hmm. white, uh, these things are are um, or washed away. These are things that are very familiar to our ears. We don't have right. any trouble making that. Now, covered, well, wait a minute. Covered sounds to us like you described it. Okay, right. That, that right. it's just it's like sweeping it under the cub, uh, to, under the, the under the rug. The yeah. rug. Yeah, there you go. But um, <laughs> when you were reading the Ligonier, I noticed that you talked about, or they talked about, the mercy seat. So let me describe yeah. the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. And the box had two angels kind of over it with widespread wings, and Mm -hmm. they, in a certain sense, the wings encompassed a space over the top of the box. And the Mm -hmm. space is where the visible presence of God dwelt. It's called the Shekinah glory, okay? But there was something in the box. Do you know what was in the box, at least originally? Yes, the Ten Commandments and the Staff of Aaron. Okay, it was the broken Ten Commandments. The broken it was yeah. the budded staff the of budded Aaron staff. that that indicated leadership that the people were rebelling against. That's why mm-hmm. the staff had to bud. And then mm-hmm. the manna that was a provision of God that people grumbled about, and therefore they were judged. Okay? So okay. when we see the broken Ten Commandments, that means the uh-huh. commandments were broken. So now you've got a figurative point being made about a literal reality, and that is the broken—God's law being broken. And then you have the leadership of God under challenge, and you have the provision of God under challenge. So when the Shekinah glory hovers over the box of the ark, what is, in a certain sense, so these are these are all for the sake of communicating visually something spiritually true. What mm-hmm. is it that, in a certain sense, God sees as he's hovering? He sees sinful rebellion, uh, uh, I mean, sin, broken broken law, rebellion against leadership, and, and rebellion against God's provision. Bad. Okay. Okay. Right, right. The Shekinah glory sees badness. Okay, so then there's a blood sacrifice. And where is the blood sacrifice? It is placed on the top of the ark. The ark, right. Between the elements of sin and the Mm -hmm. Shekinah glory. So, watch this. The blood covers the ark. And when God looks down, and again, these are all figures of speech, but metaphorically, when God looks down, instead of seeing the sin of various sorts, he sees the blood of the atonement, okay? And so in the Jewish mind, that our sins are covered is meant to capture the picture of what happens with the atonement when the blood is is spread over the elements of sin 
and God sees the blood of the atonement instead of seeing the elements of sin. So the okay. the sins are covered, or to use other terms, atoned for, and therefore God's right. anger and wrath is satisfied, and that's the that's the uh, word propitiation. So, right. uh, so this is uh, covered. Then is a more culturally specific synonym for washed or east to west or scarlet to white. It's all the okay. same thing. It's just okay. more culturally relevant. You know, I've heard some people say God forgets the sins. Now, of course, if he's omniscient, and then I know something he doesn't. Then, you know, well, God, I remember I did this, but so, so, so it couldn't be. He, yeah. So it's obvious then, because that also comes up in Hebrews 10, your sins and transgressions I will remember no more. Now, it's obvious that that's a figure of speech. It's not right. talking about God's memory. It's talking right. about his justice. There is right. not going to be a, a remembrance of crimes against us that God is going to execute justice for. He forgets them in the sense of forgiving them. It's just like if, um, say, you have a friend or one of your children or your spouse or whatever, you know, well, mm-hmm. I'll just say the way it's supposed to be. When people confess and we forgive, then we don't come back to it. It's gone. We right. forgive it. And I remember when our kids were little, and I, you know, and my daughter, uh, I'm thinking even now because she is fairly ready with with confession and apologies, right. I would say, okay, honey, I forgive you, and that's the end of it. And then right. we move on. So, in a, in a judicially, I forget it. But can right. I remember right. when she was bad? Sure. <laughs> what parent can't, you know? So right. there right. we're speaking of, again, all figures of speech. So the um, that, that content will help your group, but the yeah. hermeneutical principle is we want, we don't want to press metaphors in right, a woodenly right. literal fashion, but we do want to right. ask, what is the actual or, in a sense, literal intent of the author being communicated with the use of the metaphors? And that's the right thing to think. And so, and, and that's the, my next part of the question is the fact that metaphors can be problematic if, uh, if you use them incorrectly, right? Well, if you, un, if or, you interpret them Incorrectly, yes. We okay. always have to ask ourselves about the author. And so, for example, this sin covering, this does go back to a cultural detail of right. the, 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 the cult of sacrifice that you find in Hebraic religion. And so, if you know about that, then it makes perfect sense. If you right. don't, then it's easy to draw the wrong conclusion, like you were tempted to do, oh, this looks like sweeping it under the rug, instead of dealing with it like washed away, or something right, like right, that. Right. When in fact, they okay. mean the same thing. If okay. So, so the, the difficulty, when we're reading other people's works, we want to be careful that when the metaphor is used, that we're trying to understand, that we're understanding the metaphor in the same sense that mm-hmm. the original writer intended. Could, could you comment quickly on another metaphor that's used? Um, it has to do with sin being like an, like an illness or a disease. Well, and, um, go ahead. well, I was going to say, that's, that's um, a metaphor I've used before. Um, okay. And uh, others probably, I don't know if it's a biblical metaphor, but there's a liability to it. And the liability, and that's why we have to be careful, because people are not responsible for their sickness. This is something Mm -hmm. that comes upon them, and then you try to heal them, but they are not blameworthy for sickness. Now, they might have been stupid and done something that made them vulnerable to the sickness, but the sickness itself is not their fault. 
I mean, generally right. speaking. But sin mm-hmm. is. Sin is culpability. So when we when we talk about how humans are damaged, um, or or we are infected with uh, the 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 disease called sin, I think that right. helps move people toward in the right direction. That there is something constitutionally wrong with us, but we want to make sure that people understand that the constitutional defect is our fault, and mm-hmm. we are blameworthy. We're culpable for it, and okay. uh, and that's the necessity of forgiveness. And so you use you have to figure out what the author's intent was in using the metaphor. Correct. Is what you're saying? Yeah. When okay. it's scripture. Now, when we Correct. are using the metaphor, like uh, like this dis- disease of sin, um, right. the li- there is the liability I just mentioned. I've used it before, but I, I'm aware of this liability. I don't want people to think you're off the hook because you caught the bug. You know, it ain't a bug in that sense. It's constitutional. It's part of our cell of our being, like a sickness might be, or like a brokenness might be. But this particular um, liability is something that we are actually morally responsible for. Okay. Do you remind me? Do you have a tactic, like a mini tactic, about metaphors? Because I was thinking. This could be like a meddling metaphor or something like that. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I just, I just encourage this. This goes to the to the question of hermeneutics and how we interpret anything. And um, the principle to keep in mind is metaphors are not literal, but they make a literal point. So it's okay. always fair to say when somebody says, well, that's not literal, it's a metaphor. And they say, okay, I get you. What is it a metaphor of? Okay. That's the key question there. Okay? Okay. All right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, Andy, I appreciate your call, too. Uh, we got Cade in Durango, so let's just go right to Cade and, and see what he has to say. Cade, look forward to seeing you in about four weeks, buddy. Same here, Mr. Colquitt. really excited for the conference. Yeah, thank you. What's on your mind today? Well, I just kind of wanted to finish our conversation that I talked to you about two weeks ago concerning the rest of the Big Bang Theory and Genesis. Sure. Um, so you made the distinction, and I, re- I it was really important to me, um, that there, you really have no problem with this like theory of the evolution of the cosmos. Right. If, if, if God seemingly set certain conditions up, all he had to do was... Put down the first domino and let it roll to the place where we have us. We have habitable life. Right. Think of it like this. Maybe I use this illustration, uh, Cade, but I once saw this magnificent um, display of falling dominoes, and all the dominoes were set up in a very particular way. So the first, when you look at the dominoes standing on end, I mean, there were thousands of them. Um, and it was just a sea of dominoes. But one flick of the first domino then hit the next and the next, and as these began to fall, an entire panorama unfolded that was beautiful and complex, okay? But it was because the initial conditions had been set a certain way by the creator of that thing, and then the initial flick, and we'll parallel that to the initial conditions of the Big Bang and then the Big Bang itself, uh, is what produced this kind of complexity. And if you think about the evolution metaphor, things changing over time, that's all we mean by evolution, things changing over time. My theology has evolved over time. Um, If you go back to this domino illustration, as you're watching it, 
as as the seconds roll by and the dominoes are falling those things are the visuals are changing as the dominoes are falling but they're all changing according to a strict pattern that was determined in advance by the positioning of the dominoes by the creator of that event and it, the single agent uh, cause flicking the domino that caused everything to roll out. I think that's a fairly good metaphor, characterization, if you will, uh, about how the universe could, quote-unquote, evolve once the conditions are set in a very precise fashion, and then an initial cause, agent cause, is uh, set in motion. Right. And so when I talked to you about that, I said we either have to kick it out with biological evolution or accept it. And we chose, and like you said, there's really no problem with accepting it. But then the part of that that we didn't quite get to in our last conversation is that there's certain parts of this uh, quote-unquote evolution of the cosmos that contradict Genesis. For To put it in your metaphor, there's certain dominoes that are switched around. Mm-hmm. For example, um, in the Big Bang Theory, stars and galaxies come before Earth. There seems to be land before water. And you said when we have this theory of concordism, where we try and reconcile science with the Bible, we will often have these contradictions. We might have so, it, yes, that's right. And this is, uh, and so in, in my view here, there, it's so curious, since you and I talked, Cade, I actually uh, did an event in Washington, D.C. with Hugh, Hugh Ross, and we, were, we both swapped back and forth plenary sessions, so I sat in on every one of his sessions. And Hugh Ross is a concordist. He believes in the kind of the sequencing exactly. there, but he... His take is that the position of the observer is on the Earth, and so he's observing things that are taking place. So uh, if you have an opaque atmosphere, you don't see the sun and the stars and everything until, um, so even though they're created, they're there, you don't actually see them until sometime later. And that's when the conditions are right and the atmospheres uh, turn transparent, and then you can actually see these and use them for the purposes God made them, for measuring days, etc. So um, a lot hinges when, when there's a suggestion that there's a contradiction with Genesis. It depends on how you read those, um, those passages in Genesis chapter 1. And I know a lot has been made about day this, day that, little day, yom, but Hugh pointed out that the word yom is actually used in three different capacities— Wait. Literal. In other words, if one means literal, that is the definition in the in the dictionary. There are three different literal definitions used. One is for a twenty-four hour day. Another one is for daylight time, and another one is for a longer period of time. That would be chapter two, verse four, I think. So these are these are flex. These are terms that can be used in different ways and are used in different ways in that opening passage. And I think that has to be taken into consideration. Uh, plus, by the way, um, if the sun is made on, what, the fourth day, on, according to the chronology there? Um, I believe so. Pardon me? I believe that's uh, Yeah, that's four. right. Okay. But it says morning and evening for each day. Okay, I don't. I don't understand how there can be a morning and an evening if you take those terms in a straightforward fashion. If there is no sun, because 
morning and evening just are when the sun goes up and when the sun comes down. So in what sense are we taking morning and evening in a straightforward kind of way, as some would suggest that ought to be taken? Um, if there's no sun, I don't, I don't know how that could be taken, at least not on the, uh, the sequencing suggested by, say, young Earth creationists. I, I think that's a difficulty. And all this is to point out, uh, Cade, is that no matter what view that you take, there are going to be anomalies, and you're going to have to try to ad adapt and adjust those anomalies. It isn't like, boy, this is so easy. Here's a take with no problems at all. Everything seems to fit, because that's not the case. And uh, with the, either view, you know, um, and uh, and so I think that's that. What that causes me to do, Kate, is just to hang on with a little bit looser grip, and not try to be too dogmatic about some of these things. That that Christians with a high view of Scripture have a, a variety of different views on. Okay, that that, that makes sense, and I've I've heard and I've studied uh, Ross's opinion on that and his whole opaque atmosphere. And as time went on over the days, God revealed more of the atmosphere from like the Holy Spirit's point of view. But I do I do kind of have an objection to that point of view because even if it like were to uh, say. Resolve the discrepancy between there being stars and galaxies before we have an Earth. It doesn't uh, necessarily um, dissolve discrepancies for, say, having land before water or having different animals before other animals. Mm -hmm. And for me, that just seems we either have to like re completely reinterpret the chronological order of Genesis, or we need to like um, come forth with scientific arguments that it didn't happen that way. Yeah. And it just seems to me that there's, even if you suppose um, Ross's view, which I'm not completely convinced of, sure. Um, I feel like there's a lot of different contradictions between what we see in science and what we see in Scripture concerning the the creation order. Okay, so now, now we come to an important ju uh, epistemological junction, and I, you know what this means, how we know what we know, okay? Exactly, yeah. And so, And you don't have to answer this question, but I just want to lay this out here. Um, the question is, um, is the Bible true because we believe it's true, or do we believe it's true because it is true, okay? If the first then saying the Bible is true is simply saying it's just reflecting our belief. It's We're not saying anything about the Bible, we're saying something about our belief, okay? Now, if we say we believe it because it is true, that means then the word true means matches the way the world really is, and our belief comports with the way reality is. This is this is truth by uh, as correspondence, which is the standard definition, true, right? Yeah. Now, the reason that this distinction is important is because if we if if it's true because we believe it's true, then whatever take we have of Scripture, our own interpretation, is going to be pretty much cast in concrete, regardless of what other evidence we see in the world that seems to be well justified. Now, I don't believe in the authority of science. Science has absolutely no authority. It isn't a, it isn't a standalone enterprise that speaks, in a certain sense, on its own with divine authority. We know this because science has been wrong lots of times. Mm -hmm. what, what I think, a better way to put it is that science offers 
um, ideas or thinking or uh, assessments, and whether or not we believe them base, is based on the justification or the evidence for that particular thing. So I don't believe it because science says it. I believe it because the reasons for it are really good. Okay. Agreed. Yeah. Okay, good. So there's an important distinction. Now, I believe the Bible, I, 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 I believe the Bible is true. It's not true because I believe it. I believe it's actually true, which means that it must correspond with reality. If it turns out I find some things about the universe that are extremely well justified, okay, and it conflicts with my interpretation of Scripture, of scripture yeah. if true means that the Scripture matches the world and I got good evidence from the world that it's a certain way, it probably means I'm not reading my Bible accurately. That's what, And the classic example is heliocentrism versus geocentrism. Yeah. Okay, well, the sun, does the sun rise or not? Sun rises, sun sets. That's all throughout the Bible. It says this all the time. Okay, so that would suggest a geocentric universe. But we actually know better. We know that it's heliocentric, and it's very well justified. So this makes us ask the question, well, then why does the Bible say the sun rises and sun sets, when in fact the sun isn't moving at all in that sense? And the answer is, quite simply and legitimately, it's the language of appearance. And in fact, we still talk about sunrise and sunset, don't we? Even though, you know, we're all heliocentric in our views, we still use that language. So here I can say the Bible is is true and because it matches reality and when I find some well-justified piece of reality that seems to contradict the Bible then I'm going to try to figure out how to make both revelations of God work together. What I don't want to do is say I have my hard and fast definition or interpretation of this passage and if anything from man, so to speak, says differently, then I'm going to believe God rather than man. Okay, in that case, I think that's more like the Bible is true because I believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, so where, is our, where is our means of actually demonstrating its truth by showing it corresponds to reality? So um, the, the, this is the, you know, a kind of a hermeneutical concept that is in play for me, when I think about all of these issues here, um, I don't want to just, and I, I have, when I've offered my view or even some reflections on this, I have been dismissed with this statement Are you going to believe God or are you going to believe man? Exactly, yeah. Right. Well, the. The fact is, th- that's this, not the question. It's not the question. The question is when they say, are you going to believe God? What they mean is, are you going to believe what I think God, God means here? And so, of course, look, at we all have our own opinion, and we think our opinions are accurate. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. But the, there, there does seem to be a kind of a dogmatism that's being hung on to there that allows for no flexibility when new information comes in that seems to be well justified. It's just a dismissal as the authority of science over the authority of God, or man's word against God's word. And this is not helpful, I think, for actually finding the truth. By the way, I have no sense and never have had any sense that this is your your way of approaching it, Cade. Uh, Yeah. So I'm just saying that, but it is the way a lot of people do approach it. You know that, because you're, it sounds like you've encountered that. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, in, in investigating Young Earth and Old Earth, I definitely, when I listen to these Young Earth arguments, their biggest thing is we need to take God at his word and not try and interpret millions of years. But we look at, like, St. Augustine. He had these ideas that possibly these these days were longer periods of time before right. we even had the scientific idea of millions of years. So I really think, I agree with you, that's not the question. But no. I think my question then, in light of what you just said, Mr. Kogel, is, I guess it would kind of be two. Would we embrace then a concordist view of the Bible where we're trying to we're trying to look outside of it and see if we're interpreting it correctly? And if so, how would we more specifically? How would we reinterpret? Or that may, might not be a good word. How would we align what we see in science with? the order of events, like yes, the, the stars the, and galaxies with yes, Genesis. the well-justified details of science. Uh, this is where I think Hugh has been very helpful. Um, uh, and I, I actually, even after this last week, I've known Hugh a long time. We knew each other before either of us had organizations, and Stand to Reason is almost 30 years old. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, But I think his, concord, his concordance explanation is very compelling, and he takes seriously all of these aspects of the text. Uh, and so it's, it, it, it strikes me as not having the kinds of problems that other takes have. He also mentioned that non-concordist views, like uh, like a, um, I'm trying to think of the na- other name, where you have a structural thing, where you have three days, three spaces created and three spaces filled. First three days, space is created. Next three days, space is filled. He said, if you're just, if that's the long and short of it, you've got other co- problems. He just mentioned that. So um, um, I can't represent his view in the sense of, how do all of these particular details in Genesis 1 match with your concordance view? And for the rest of the people listening, a concordance view is where you take the, you, you try to reconcile these events that happen in a, in a sequence with the, the external scientific evidence. You find a concord between them, concord between those two. And um, both the young earthers and old earthers are concordists, but they have a different understanding of how it all cashes out and plays out. All I could tell you is when I've heard Hugh do his full explanation of Genesis uh, based on an old earth concordist take, it's very compelling. And it answered a whole lot of questions. There are still questions that haven't been answered for me, but um, I was very impressed with it. So I, I still am a little bit in limbo. I, I'm not tempted at all by the young earth view. I'm just still not um, sure how to take it entirely. I remember, though, the first time I, I talked with Hugh, I did an interview with him at KBRT many years ago, again, before we either either of us had our organizations. We were walking out uh, at the end of the uh, radio show, and I said to him, I said, it seems to me it's a lot easier to know what did not take place, which would be the Darwinian evolution kind of materialistic characterization of it all, and what did take place, which would have to be some kind of intelligent design based on the preponderance of evidence, but exactly how that played itself out in history. That's a lot harder to figure out. And he agreed with me. Um, so he's developed his own ideas more since then, obviously, but I, I, I do think it's, it's a lot easier to show what didn't happen, and that would be any materialist scheme of things to explain the origin 
and the development of the universe. Because you've got a cosmological argument and you've got a teleological argument, the origin of the universe and the design of the universe that both point uh, unmistakably, it seems to me, to an intelligent creator. Now, exactly how did he put that all together? If we were in God's workshop watching it happen, what does that look like? Uh, that's a lot harder to figure out. And We don't quite know, yeah. We don't, and, and, and I think we have a somewhat sketchy characterization in the first chapter, first few chapters of Genesis. So, uh, and that just means needs to be hammered out. doesn't mean we can't come to true conclusions about more of those details, but this is why I think we have to be charitable and careful with others who love the Lord and have a high view of Scripture but disagree with us. That makes sense. And I think one final thought for you, Mr. Kokel, would you agree that, like, even we're going to continue to have these questions about Genesis and how it, how it, um, how it goes with science, but would you agree that the main message of Genesis is, first of all, to establish that there is a creation, there is a creator, and that um, God is the creator of all things? Basically? Yeah, I think, yeah, here's my music, but the answer to that is yes. The main question is, since it was the Jews that lived for 400 years under Egyptian cosmologies, it's the idea that God is the creator and everything else are things. The sun and moon have a function, have functions, they don't have names. And so I think you're spot on it. That's the place we can all agree on. Thank you, Kate. Look forward to seeing you in a few weeks at um, the Minneapolis Reality. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.